Uh, it is uh, a new year, and uh, each year we do uh, start uh, kind of a short series uh, to address our DNA as a congregation. It's crazy to think that this is like year six. Uh, we're heading towards six full years and uh, as a congregation, so we start to actually have a history, which is, which is interesting. Uh, I think it's good, uh, but it's just, just a little bit different as we think about these things. So uh, last year, as we started the year, we took a look a little bit uh, at our, our mission and our vision. We asked, why Reno, if you remember that. So three short weeks, just taking a look at uh, what we believe is a biblical thing and how it rises out of Scripture, the mission that we feel called to. And so this year, we are going to take a look at uh, our core values. Uh, so you'll look at these wonderful pictures on the wall. Uh, they aren't just there for decor, although they are quite nice. Um, they are there to remind us who we are and what we value. And uh, so you'll see this one over to the left, that because the word of God is truth, it is a foundation on which we build our lives. And the biggest word there is truth. Truth is a core value for us. We value truth, God's truth. We build our lives upon the foundation of the scriptures, God's revealed truth to us. And so the name of this series is The Truth We Believe. The Truth We Believe. Uh, part of this, uh, the series that, that came about, came from a uh, survey that Ligonier put out. Uh, they've been doing this for, for a while now, and uh, they do this every two years. It's called The State of Theology. Really, it was a measurement to see where Americans were in what they believed and also where evangelicals were, comparing the two. On 34 statements, you either agree uh, totally or strongly agree, or you strongly disagree, and there's a little bit of measurement in between. So they do this every year to just measure where people are at. What is the truth that people believe? Where are people's convictions in this regard? And so this was put out in October at some point, if you remember, in early December, we sent out our own survey, uh, really, uh, to, to do this internally at Renovation Church. And I'm grateful for the 40 people that responded, very helpful, uh, and giving us uh, somewhat of a picture of where Renovation stands in regard to uh, this, this uh, survey, this, this state of theology is probably a better way to put it here at Renovation Church. And so that's what we're doing. Uh, we're taking a look at uh, some of these 34 statements, we're taking a look at uh, our uh, responses, our answers, and we're hoping to actually be an encouragement over the next four weeks, uh, to encourage the congregation that you're uh, believing and holding dear to the truth, uh, and also to reinforce that, right? Even though it's a truth we hold, that doesn't mean we ignore it, we reinforce it. And so our hope is, in many ways, over the next month, to reinforce what we value, the truth about what we believe the Scriptures teach. Also, in some ways, there may be uh, some confusion, as there were some undecideds, and there was some uh, disagreement, maybe, with what we might hope, uh, not a lot of it, but some still worth clarifying and instructing us in. And don't forget uh, that we do live in a world that is very confused. And so all the more we hope to equip our people, people that come here, with the truth so that as they interact with a world around them that uh, comes from so many different angles, that sees truth uh, as very relative and pluralistic, 
but to have some grounding to stand on. So it's our hope to equip you as well in this short four-week series called uh, The Truth We Believe. Why does this matter? Also, sound theology matters, right? Sometimes we think theology is just for like smart people who are bored and don't have a job or something like that, right? Don't have a real job. Uh, but the, the reality is, is that theology is profoundly practical. We live what we believe, okay? So our hope here is not to get all intellectual with you at all. Our hope is to practically impact not just what you believe up here, but what you live out. And if theology isn't practical, we're missing something here. Okay, it, I should say it this way, our theology isn't practical, we're missing the mark, right? This is about living a faithful life of worship, not just knowing things up here. It's about life. So uh, this is going to hopefully be practical for you. So statement number 12 is our first one today. Even the smallest sins deserve eternal damnation. Even the smallest sins deserve eternal damnation. What do you believe about that statement? Do you agree? Do you disagree? Are you undecided? Among Americans, according to Ligonier's study, 70% of people disagree that even the smallest sin deserves eternal damnation with 58% strongly disagreeing. So what do the scriptures say? Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. Is anybody else noticing a Sasha-like tone today? I'll yell at some point during the sermon, believe me. But it's a little more gentle today, isn't it? It's a new year. It's a new year. Grateful for that brother last week. Always grateful for Sasha. Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. Listen to what the word of the Lord says. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings, with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the king. The Lord of hosts. And then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. 
And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your mouth. I'm sorry, your lips. Your guilt is taken away. And your sin is atoned for. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God abides forever. Everyone said, Amen. Amen. This is a well-known, a famous uh, uh, account in the scriptures, often quoted, often referred to across history, and yet we see right away that this, this vision is rooted in a time. It's rooted in history. There's a king, King Uzziah, that has died. Okay? Uh, he was a king that reigned for quite a long time, 52 years. And for the most part, Uzziah was a, a, a decent king. He, did a, he was faithful until the end. Pride took over, and then uh, on the basis of that, the Lord inflicted him with leprosy. So his final days were somewhat tragic and sad, and, uh, and he died uh, that way. And so here he has died, King Uzziah. And uh, at this time, uh, Isaiah has this vision. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw. There's this vision that Isaiah has. He's the prophet here recording these things. He's the representative of the Lord. He's speaking on his behalf. And in the year that King Uzziah dies, Isaiah records that he has this vision. And he has a vision that gives him a dose of reality, right? Uh, on the one hand, you look at this situation, and a 52-year reign has ended. There may be some confusion and question about uh, the future of the nation. What will happen next? There's uncertainty. Uh, who is in charge? Is there any hope that the next king would bring about some of the prosperity that was, that was enjoyed under Uzziah? What would happen. And so, uh, in reality, we see death, but in this vision, Isaiah gets a picture of reality in a more ultimate and true sense. That while the temporary earthly king is dead, the earthly king is very much alive. Is very much alive. And in this vision, that's what Isaiah Sees. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Isaiah is woken up to reality. The king is not dead. The king is alive. When all assurance seems to be in question, there is assurance in the rule and the reign of God. When things seem to be out of control, God is in control. I don't know about you, I haven't had a vision like this, but I've had uh, um, experiences in my life where God's presence was very real in the midst of some very difficult moments. Moments where I felt very vulnerable, confused, I felt like uh, maybe things were out of control, and I wasn't really sure what would happen next, and I wasn't really sure if I was safe. Are you following me? Circumstances in my life would shake me. Something would happen that would call into question reality about some of the things I believed. 
in this moment, we see that while it may look like the king is dead, while it may look like and feel like things are out of control, while it may look like that there is no hope in the midst of a certain situation, the truth is the king is alive. He's on the throne. He's in control. He has authority and he's good and we can trust in him. So here there's somewhat of a reality check for Isaiah. The king is on the throne. All hope is not lost. That should be comforting even for us now. Even for us in the midst of our circumstances and struggles. And I pray today that as the word is preached and the prayers are given and the songs are sung, that again, anew, as we start a new year, that there is a fresh uh, uh, enjoyment for you about the presence of God in your life, to wake you up to the reality of who He is, okay? So while things may seem hopeless and lost, understand this, things are stable. God is on the throne. He is in control, Amen? Very encouraging, just even the thought of that. But he sees this vision, and he sees the Lord. Notice the spelling here, right? There are two ways that we read Lord in the Scriptures, especially the Old Testament Scriptures, right? We have Lord, capital L, lowercase o-r-d here. But I thought Lord was spelled capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. Have you seen the distinction of that before? Right? Yeah. Right? What is going on here? Lowercase o, r, and d? Yes, well, it does not refer to the name Yahweh. That refers to the word Adonai, which means sovereign. And so when Isaiah sees the Lord, he is seeing the king. He's seeing the one who is in control, seated on a throne. But not only did he see the Lord, he saw the seraphim, the angelic beings that were most likely burning. Can you picture that? Uh, first of all, I think this whole experience is very multi-sensory. There's seeing, there's hearing, there's feeling. So I want you to kind of enter into that, right? Uh, this experience is very multi-sensory. It's, it's a, it's, he's, Isaiah's experiencing this. He's feeling this. He's seeing this. And so he sees the Lord, and then he sees these angelic beings that are burning. And they have, what? Wings. Each had six wings. With two he covers his face, with two he covers his feet, and with two he flew. An experience unlike any other. A dose of reality of what is taking place behind the scenes, if you will. And he hears a song being sung. Verse 3 says this, that one called to the other and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. There's a song, most likely antiphonal, right? So he hears this song being sung by the angels. Holy, holy, holy. Three times. Don't miss the significance of the three times where this word is given, holy, holy, holy. That is to emphasize the nature of God. The holy, 
holy, holy brings about an emphasis. Like, this is what we do, right? I mean, I'm looking at my page right now. I got bold, I got underline, I got italics, right? We do things to emphasize something so that they are not missed. Holy, holy, holy. The three times is therefore emphasis. Don't miss the nature of God here. Holy, holy, holy. Uh, we have this in the house. When I really want to communicate, because you know I'm always communicating in some way. But when I really want to communicate, it goes a little something like this. All right, everybody on the couch. Right? This is how we emphasize something in my house. Everybody on the couch. It's time for daddy to preach. You know? And they're like, oh, God, no. Not again. Okay, Dad, just stop. Emphasis is given here. Holy, holy, holy. Just like Revelation 4.8. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was, who is, and is to come. The angelic song, the last book of the scriptures. Holy, holy, holy. The only attribute that has the three-time emphasis. We talk about God is love all the time, right? That is true. Amen. God is love. But it never says anywhere, as Sproul in his book emphasizes, God is love, love, love. And here we see an emphasis that is given in the scriptures only in one aspect of the nature of God. Holiness. Holiness. What does holy mean? Typically we think about holiness and we think about uh, moral perfection, purity, right? Uh, we think about righteousness. Those are good things to be thinking about when we think about holy. So when the angel is singing, holy, 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 surely he's referring in some way, shape, or form to righteousness and perfection, right? Absolutely. But that's not really the totality of what is being communicated here. R.C. Sproul defines it this way. When the Bible calls God holy, it means primarily that God is transcendently separate. Let me explain. Transcendently means that He is above us. Did you hear that? God is above us. God is beyond us, right? We just celebrated his, his, that he came to us and he became like us in the tree. Why is the tree the symbol today? In Christmas, we celebrate that he came to us, that he was imminent, close to us. That is true in Christ's incarnation. But God is also above us. He's beyond us, high and lifted up. The train of his robe fills the temple. He's above us. He's beyond us. Transcendent. That's what it means. Separate means that he is distinct from us. He's not just above us and beyond us. He's also distinct from us. So when saying he's holy, he's saying this God, this being is different. He's holy. He's distinct. He's separate, literally to cut, to separate out from all else. No one 
is like the Lord. He is holy. He is different. He's distinct. And he's above. And so that is what the angels are singing. That is the Lord that Isaiah is seeing. The Holy One. The one that is transcendently separate. The God who is above us. The God that is beyond us. The God that is infinitely distinct in his nature from us. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. So no Ashton Kutcher. Jesus is not your homeboy. Okay? We love the imminence. We love the closeness. And we should. But sometimes in our emphasis on that, we've missed out on the transcendence of God. He's beyond us. He's above us. And I pray today that the Spirit of God would show the weight of the nature of the glory and the holiness of God to you, for you, and for me. So the Lord is transcendently separate. He's righteous. He's perfect. He's absolutely pure. The Lord is holy. This is who God is. And so we go to this statement about even the smallest sins deserve eternal damnation. And we realize that what's really at stake in that statement is the nature of God. A faulty understanding, or true one, I should say, of the nature of God. What we believe about that statement. Right? R.C. Sproul says, oh, I already have that one. Sorry, we got that one. So he, when we look at it, we're, we're really relating it to the holiness of God. Right? It's not a measurement of small sins versus big sins per se. It's not a, a couple categories of sins. As some are eternally uh, condemnable and some not. You see, the reason we measure that way is because we, we measure uh, with the wrong measuring standard. We typically uh, think of our sin relative to other sins that we've committed. Right? Like some sins that we've committed are really bad. And some of them are just, eh, you know, small. Sometimes we feel really bad about what we've done or what we've said. And sometimes we're like, eh, everybody does that, right? So we compare, uh, like, the difference between an ang anger that leads to slamming a door versus anger that leads to assault. Right? Those, are, those are very different, right? Uh, what about rolling eyes versus direct disobedience? Right? What's, one's definitely worse than the other, right? Pornography versus straight-up adultery. What's worse? You feel really bad about one, but eh, everybody does it, might be what we do. Or we uh, measure sin relative to other people's sin. Well, I haven't done that. I'm not that guy, right? We watch the news and we feel great about ourselves. We're like, well, I didn't do that this week. I'm on a roll, right? 
Am I right? I mean, yeah. Trying to speed up a little bit. I'm not good at this relaxed pace. I'm working on it. But that's how we measure sin. We create categories of small and big. Let me give you a quick question here to test this. Ready? Are you ready? Here's a, here's a question. So, in your mind, which is the smaller or the smallest crime? Are you ready? Plotting the murder of the king, committing adultery with the spouse of a king, three, during war giving the enemies aid, four, counterfeiting money, coins, five, being a Catholic priest. What do you think? What's the smallest sin? Somebody throw out one. Three. Three? Okay. During war, giving enemies aid. Is that based on the past experience, Bill? <laughs> that was rude. Okay. Here's what's interesting. At one point or another, in the UK, in history, all five of these things were classified as treason at one point or another. See, we can categorize it. We can measure one sin small or another. But really, we're just measuring the size of treason. It's all treason. Petty treason, high treason, treason. Right? When we measure in a right way with the holiness of God, it's all treason. It's all treason. So these categories of small and big sins, they, they don't really exist. There's no such categories. It's all treason. Sproul says this. He says, sin is cosmic treason. Even the slightest sin that a creature commits against his creator does violence to the creature's holiness, his glory, his righteousness. Every sin, no matter how seemingly insignificant, is an act of rebellion against the sovereign God who reigns and rules over us, and as such is an act of treason against the cosmic king. And, and Isaiah feels this. Isaiah feels this. He's not measuring his sin, uh, sin A versus sin B in his life. He's not measuring his sin versus somebody else's sin. His measurement is the holiness of God. Because that is the measurement, the standard that we measure sin against. God's nature, God's holiness. And he feels this, right? What does he say? Upon experiencing and seeing the holiness of God, hearing this song as the, the foundations of the thresholds of the temple uh, shake, he says, woe is me. He proclaims doom on himself. Woe is a pronouncement of doom. Woe is me. I'm dead meat. Why? Why would he say that? I'm dead meat. Why? I'm lost. Or better put, I'm ruined. Or maybe even I'm unraveled. I'm disintegrating. You know, integrity, everything comes together. Undone. Unraveled. Disintegrating. I'm, I'm dead meat. I'm falling apart at the seams. Literally. Because of the nature of God. We should feel the weight of that with him. 
I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Lips, mouth, there's always a connection to the heart. This is about his heart. This isn't about his lips per se. It's about his heart. His heart before God. And the, he's just like the people around him that are unclean, that have a heart far from God. Right? See, he's seeing the Holy One who's unique. And he's just like everybody else. He's not holy. He's typical. Really, he's profane. He feels that. And then he says why he's dead. He's all those things, and he has at the same time seen the holy God who he knows he can't see and live at the same time as the scriptures teach. So we have a major problem here. The profane in the presence of the holy. A life and death situation. He's toast. He's dead meat. Opposites don't attract. No one can see God and live. So he feels the weight of God's nature and holiness relative to his treason, his sin. And so we're sitting here wondering, like, is there any hope for Isaiah as he's unraveled and undone? We may be wondering as we think about our own life and our own sin, our own treason, that we know, if we're just to be honest for a minute, we have committed and commit. Is there any hope for us? And the beauty of this passage, as we continue to measure that statement against where it should be measured, the nature of God, we see that God is holy, yes, but we see that He is also very merciful. We see the hope here in verse 6 and 7. One of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, your sin is atoned for. Yes, holiness of God is real. It's the measurement, which it's the standard by which we measure our sin. And so we understand, yes, that every sin, all sins, big or small, however we want to categorize them, they are all condemnable, eternally condemnable. And yet, because of the mercy of God, because of the altar of God, they're also forgivable, really forgiven by His merciful purifying touch the angel takes the coal from the altar right from the altar of god and he goes to isaiah and he puts the coal on isaiah's mouth does not he goes right to the source right nothing superficial nothing sentimental about redemption here he goes to the source a man of unclean lips boom coal lips and in doing so God does what Isaiah could not do on his own. God purifies. God cleanses. God forgives. God atones for the sin that was causing his doom. And that's what he does for each and every one of us. It is the altar of God where we find the source of which all of our sins are atoned. 
The holiness of God is the standard by our sin, which our sins are measured, but it is the altar of God that is the source of which all our sins are atoned. How do we know this is true? God doesn't overlook our sin. He doesn't accommodate our sin. No, He atones for our sin. How do we know that's true? We know this because Jesus Christ. He is. His sacrifice is the, is the sacrifice given and laid upon the altar of God. On the cross, Jesus was the perfect sacrifice that, that achieved atonement for sinners. He's the fulfillment of what this foreshadows. That God does something that we could not do. Satisfy perfectly His wrath against our sin. This is the nature of the gospel. That yes, holiness is a major problem for sinful humanity, but God in His great grace has shared His holiness with us from the altar through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ who died on the cross and who secures for us forgiveness and pardon and atonement. Atonement just simply being uh, uh, where we are reconciled. We're at one with God again. Restored. Back in a relationship. Sin is no longer an obstacle in the way of us knowing and enjoying God. We don't have to die because Jesus died for us. So if you're here today and you've never really grappled with the atonement, the sacrifice of Jesus, if you didn't understand where, where forgiveness would ever come from in some of the things that you've done in your life, the sins you've committed, know that it's at the altar of God, specifically Jesus in his death on the cross for you. You don't have to be ruined. You don't have to be unraveled. You don't have to be doomed because Christ was doomed for you. Christ secured redemption and atonement for you. All you need to do is place your faith, hope, and trust in Him, and you will be made righteous. You will be declared righteous in His sight. And that's what Isaiah experiences here. He experiences the height of holiness, and he's experienced the depth of grace. Depth of his atoning love for us. And so we know this, that, that Hebrews 10.10 is specifically saying that by that will, the will of God, we have been sanctified. NIV says we've been made holy. We have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Once for all. We will sing this shortly. My sins, they are many, but his mercy is is more. So here's the truth that we believe. All sin, big or small, is measured in comparison to God's holiness. And thus all sin, big or small, is subject to God's just condemnation. Let's not minimize God's holiness by minimizing our sinfulness. Okay? Let's see sin for the seriousness that it brings to us. What a wonderful thing to start the year in some of these basics of the nature of God and, and the, the forgiveness of God that comes through Jesus Christ, the gospel. And so, Renovation Church, we deny this statement 
We strongly disagree. We stand against it. This idea that uh, small sins don't deserve God's eternal damnation. But we're not just against, we're for. We, we want you to know that this is central to the gospel. This is our message. We're for something. We're for God's holiness. We're for God's mercy in Christ. We're for believing and trusting and embracing this work of Jesus by faith. We're for the truth. No sentiment do we want to bring to you or to the world around us that it doesn't matter that God is just loving in the sense that he shoves things under a rug and does not punish. We don't want to be sentimental. We want to be truthful. That's loving to tell you the truth about God's nature and the reality of condemnation for sin that has not been atoned for. So please, see what you can see the results of renovation, if you can. Right? Strongly agree. One undecided and strongly disagree. Even the smallest sin deserves eternal damnation. We agree. We agree. Be encouraged. Be encouraged in the sense that you're holding dear to what the scriptures teach about God's holiness in nature. But don't just be encouraged. Here's a couple things to think about in application before we, we head out. Because you might be saying, well, what do I do with this? Well, first of all, know that your God is holy. Right? You can't respond to something that you're not aware of. Know that your God is holy. If you want to be encouraged even more in this, pick up Sproul's book, The Holiness of God. When I was 17 years old, I picked it up, and it wrecked me. I don't think I applied it well, so hopefully we do. But I had a hard time praying for like six months. It wrecked me. I avoided God, almost like Luther does in that chapter. I don't want to be anywhere near God. It scared me. Misapplied it. I think be drawn to it because he's holy. We're drawn to him. But maybe pick up that book. Know more about his nature. Know his holiness. But then, because you know his holiness and the doom that comes by being different than that, repent. Like, this is a call to repentance. Start the year by turning away from sin and running to the righteousness of God. Run into his arms by faith in Jesus Christ. Repent and trust in Christ. And last, receive pardon. Receive pardon. His, our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. But last, and I think this is what I really want to encourage our people here this morning, is pursue God's holiness in every aspect of your life. This is something to be pursued. January 1st, uh, we did the, what we try to do every year around this time. Uh, we, we sat everybody down on the couch. No, we didn't. It was at the, was at the kitchen counter. We said, okay, we want everybody to pray and ask God, thinking about four areas of life, spiritually, academically, athletically, and then just to catch all, like personally, whatever else you want. Just trying to be simple. One goal for 2019 in every category of, this, uh, of these four categories. So they all came back uh, the, oh, so joyfully uh, on, on New Year's Day. Um, you know, part of me was thinking, like, can't we just go Adam Sandler and just say, don't die? Like, 
isn't that enough for this year? I'm kind of tired, right? Um, but no, it's good exercise to set goals, right? We're an ambitious people as Christians. We're followers of Jesus. We're, we're following. We're pursuing. We're pressing on. We're, we're an ambitious people as Christians. We're not satisfied with the status quo of where we are in relationship to God, are we? It's just Sunday mornings and uh, uh, 10 minutes on the way to work over a podcast. Is that enough? And then we just live however we want to. Is that enough? No, we're, we're ambitious people. We're pursuing Christ. We're pursuing holiness. Right? That those who have received the gift of righteousness through Christ are people that now are empowered by the Holy Spirit to get rid of sin and to pursue holiness. For God said, be holy. Why? For I'm holy. You're my people. You're set apart. You're cut out. Right? You're mine. So as we went through all of our goals, and I ask you, as you set goals, is holiness on the list? Do you want to look at the end of 2019 and say, I'm more like Christ than I was a year ago? Again, you can't do it on your own strength. You need the Holy Spirit. So conjuring up effort. But you partner with the Spirit. You work with the Spirit. You yield to the Spirit. You be, you're filled with the Spirit. You pursue God in the Word. You pray. You meet together in community. And you receive grace and you grow. You pursue holiness. 1 Thessalonians 4 says, This is the will of God. Your sanctification. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God who gives us his Holy Spirit. Flee youthful passions, pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace, along with those who call on the name of the Lord from a pure heart. 2 Timothy 2. Hebrews 12, 14 says this, strive for peace with everyone and for holiness. Strive for holiness. It says, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. No one. We need it. God has given it to us. We have it. And now we pursue it. Go after it. Adjust your year goals. Number one, pursuing God in all of his holiness. Ambitious we are, right? I pray that there will be testimonies of how God, by his spirit, has conformed you to the image of his son in the next year. Not just got a pay raise, right? Not just got away a couple more times with the spouse, Right? Not just drop 15, which I'm going, I'm heading. Starting Monday. Not just dropping 15. Pursuing holiness in every aspect of our lives. Why? Because the holiness of God is the standard by which all sins are measured. Let's pray. Holy, holy, 
holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is filled with his glory. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was, who is, and is to come. We praise you together for your holiness, O God. We confess our profanity at times and in our actions. We cry out for Christ's grace. We're grateful that you've given it to us, that you cleanse us and purify us and make us more like Christ. Help us, O God, to run after all that you are, to be holy because you are holy. Amen.